I vaguely remember when I started hearing about fake marijuana on local news stations. It sold under the brand names like Spice and K2. I didn't pay it much attention because, you know, come on, fake marijuana? Fake marijuana is oregano that some rookie accidentally buys. But one time I came across it and they didn't refer to it as fake marijuana. Instead, they called it synthetic cannabinoids. And it was then that they had my total attention. Fake marijuana is a stupid name. Synthetic cannabinoids is specific enough and shows enough understanding of the plant that I decided it was worth searching online. And I'll be darned, people were actually making synthetic cannabinoids in a laboratory and selling it on the street. And folks were getting fucked up. Folks were having outlandish side effects like blurred vision, vomiting, seizures, hallucinations, heart attacks, and some folks even died. The crazy thing is that calling it fake marijuana is just totally untrue and really lazy journalism. Somebody made cannabinoids in a lab that do not even occur in the marijuana plant. These are totally not of nature. They may technically be in the same chemical class as what is in a real plant cannabis sativa, but they really have zero in common in nature. That said, synthetic cannabinoids, why they exist, and how they made it out of the laboratory and for sale at your local gas station is a really interesting story. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and techniques, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right into your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week. Social media sites are becoming very unreliable in showing folks every post they want to see. So sign up for the Shaping Fire newsletter and make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dr. Greg Gerdeman, and today we're going to talk about synthetic cannabinoids. Greg is a neurophysiologist with expertise in the endocannabinoid system. He has received research support from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Science Foundation, and his articles have appeared in journals such as Nature Neuroscience, Trends in Neuroscience, and Neuropsychopharmacology. His ongoing research while an assistant professor of biology at Eckerd College includes the molecular physiology of cannabinoid receptors and their evolution within neural systems. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, Shango. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that you could be on. So, you know, before we get into synthetic cannabinoids, let's review what actually are naturally occurring cannabinoids so that people can see the contrast. Sure. Well, it's, it's going to be easy for your audience to realize that the naturally occurring cannabinoids, as their name applies, are those that are naturally synthesized from the cannabis plant. That's When I think about cannabinoids, I'm thinking about that family of molecules that are made by cannabis. Now, I know that there's more and more interest in other natural products that have some interaction with the cannabinoid system, like, say, beta-caryophylline is a you know natural product in black peppers and in cannabis. But when I think of cannabinoids, I'm thinking of THC, CBD, varieties thereof. Uh, those are the, are the real, the most popular ones. Things that come from the cannabis plant. And so, um, you know, some people talk about endocannabinoids, you know, the, the endogenous cannabinoids that are produced in, inside the human body. And then other folks are talking about phytocannabinoids that, uh, you know, phyto meaning coming from the plant. Um, are synthetic cannabinoids um, neither of those? Therefore, they are, they are a third thing. 
You know, yeah, I, I think of them as the third thing. And I, I like those distinctions. Of course, the endocannabinoids are as natural as can be. That's really where I've spent my time mostly thinking about and are are found all throughout animals. Um, and it, the plants have uh, molecules that we now see as endocannabinoids, like anandamide. Phytocannabinoids come from the plants, and mostly I'm thinking about cannabis. You, one could use synthetic chemistry to make a a cannabinoid like THC can be made synthetically you know and it is and so that would be a synthetic or semi-synthetic um, cannabinoid in my view but if it's just mimicking a natural cannabinoid it may be gray area most of what we call synthetic cannabinoids are chemical structural um, analogs that are based on either the phytocannabinoids or the endocannabinoids uh, but tweaked a little bit, add a different atom here or there, give it a proprietary new look to see if it can act in the body a little differently, a little stronger, a little longer, less psychoactive, that kind of thing. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when um, when K2 and Spice came out and people started talking about them as being, you know, fake pot or, or synthetic cannabinoids, uh-huh. I remember, you know, anybody who's a cannabis enthusiast was just, you know... Um, it makes you pull your hair out. Yeah, right? We're like, why on earth would you do something so evil with something so natural and beautiful? But, you know, as I got into this, doing my research, you know, for the show today, I actually realized that the synthetic cannabinoids were made, you know, for the good of humans. Would you go ahead and tell us that story? Well, yeah. I mean, what we call synthetics, I mean, they came out of the research you know, endeavor, the research environment, uh, because, you know, People who don't understand sort of the narrative of discovery may not get that, but honestly, I mean, when we celebrate these endocan- the endocannabinoid system, the receptors and the and the uh, the ligands, the the endocannabinoids themselves, uh, in some way, we really owe that to synthetic uh, drug tools. Uh, case in point, I mean, some of the potent THC analogs were discovered in the were synthesized and created like in the 70s and 80s. Um, and they were just chemical structural analogs of THC. And uh, pharmacologists, we didn't know what the CB recept- CB1, CB2 receptors were, but uh, they knew that this drug looked like THC. It was made to look like THC, and it was much more strong, much stronger than THC in like how it affected rodent behavior, uh, especially. And then uh, some chemists stuck a little radioactive probe on it, made it a hot ligand, what we call a radioisotope that's weakly radioactive. And those synthetic cannabinoids became probes that were used to probe around brain tissue in experimental animals um, and, and discover that, in fact, there was a specific receptor. It's how the receptor was initially discovered. It was a binding site for these synthetic THC analogs. Then, as the receptor was discovered, the endocannabinoids were discovered amongst the, and I was just getting into the field at that point and at a young age, um, and the uh, there was so much excitement amongst the small field of endocannabinoid researchers, but those cannab- uh, cannabis cannabinoid researchers who were chemists were continuing to tweak the molecules and try to come up with uh, with 
analogs of an anamide or THC that could be more specific or maybe a more useful therapeutic or just used as a research tool to figure out, hey, is CB1 doing this or is CB2 doing this? Uh, it, is it responsible for something that's seen in the lab? Uh, and you don't know unless you can specifically activate or block them with synthetic drugs. And so um, as far as, you know, a lot of people don't, I mean, I didn't even know when I first got into this, um, you know, the idea of it as a lab tool. So can you kind of explain a little bit how um, building a lab tool to be used in an experiment is helpful? Um, because sometimes you need to run a test that, that um, the molecule you need doesn't actually exist in nature. Yeah, I mean, in a general sense, you, you said it quite well. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean the, the brain is so complicated. The, the pharmacology of our bodies are so complicated um, that trying to get specificity of a, um, of a drug that hits certain targets and not others um, is not something that you necessarily have. I mean, it's not something you have in the cannabis plant. Uh, those molecules are actually, the phytocannabinoids are, are actually um, delightfully wide-acting. I mean, it, it gets a bad rap historically to say it's a dirty drug because THC will hit multiple things. It, come to find out, I think that's a big part of why it's a um, surprisingly gentle kind of medicine that you have this entourage of molecules that hits so many things. Um, I digress a little bit with that. I mean, uh, as a tool to try and figure out the fine nuts and bolts of how these this unseen world of molecules in our mind work, um, you have to develop specific compounds that uh, really target them or in the world of genetics you know, tinker with an animal so that it has slightly different receptors i'm not saying all of this is necessary to come up with the best medicine as part of where the disconnect is but it is necessary for this quest to understand how things work Right on. <clears throat> so to kind of like summarize that, you know, Dr. Huffman and others in those early days, they were developing these uh, synthetic cannabinoids, not because they ever intended them to become a product, but because they, for example, wanted to uh, take a receptor and say, okay, well, natural cannabinoids can, can you know, highlight this receptor up to, you know, 40%, but, but what would it take to, to, to open it up all the way to 100% or whatever? Right. And, and those those didn't exist in nature, but they wanted to see what it would take to to open it up all the way. And so they they made they made fake ones, synthetic ones, to see what it would take. And then maybe you know after the fact they would try to find something that in nature that acted the same way. So essentially they're kind of like um, they're kind of like crutches to move the research on, which aren't really ever supposed to get out of the lab. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, in in a way, I see it that way. I mean. It, developing a tool, like I made that example uh, without full, much forethought, but how the tools were used as probes to find the receptor yeah. to work to work experimentally, it's got to be it's going to be a better molecule as a probe if it binds more tightly than THC does. And though binding tightly isn't synonymous with being a pow more powerful, potent drug, it tends to track that way. Um, so these super powerful um, activators that um, are 
like a thousand times more potent than THC, they were developed as a tool to be strong binding uh, ligands, uh, drugs. Now, you know, when you say that the drugs were never meant to be out of the lab, I mean, it's not like these medicinal chemists aren't open to it becoming a product. I mean, when they synthesize a series of things, John Huffman at Clemson developed that JWH series of drugs um, that is his initials. And and there are other like real eminent chemists who have done stuff, including Rafi Mishulam. I mean, the series of drugs called HU, HU210 is one I've used experimentally. It's a very strong THC analog, and it has appeared in some of these illicit spice products. Not as many as the JWH series because they're easier to synthesize by the clandestine chemists who who whip them up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, here's the thing. Science, scientists aren't, so they may have been open to the idea that this could be a therapeutic and of course they would patent it and spin it off and that's, you know, not outside their thinking. But, you know, when they go to scientific conferences and say, here's this drug and it works to target this population of receptors and not this one and in our animal model it shows hey it might be useful for diabetes or something in a way that won't make you high i mean these are these are trying to scientists chemists trying to contribute to uh their view of the greater good and developing therapeutics and in the process of giving scientific talks and publishing papers you know they show what the molecule is and someone with a decent organic chemistry background can look at molecules like uh, the JWH series that look a lot like an arachidonic acid and anandamide, things that are very easy to obtain, um, and they can make it in the lab. Uh, so you open these things up. There's all there's all kinds of parallels with the other, um, you know, serotonin reuptake psychedelics i mean a lot of drugs that were developed as research tools got out into a club scene and um, some of them have led to uh, fatal overdoses right um so um we're going to talk more about um their uses by by you know recreational drug users after the first break but before we go to commercial i wanted to ask you you know When I first got into researching synthetics, I kind of thought that people were developing the synthetic cannabinoids because using real cannabis was so restricted in research by the federal government that they they had to create other synthetics. And I've heard this from other people, but now hearing you talk about it, it sounds like synthetic cannabinoids would be useful as tools in the laboratory regardless if if the research scientists had access to real uh, whole plant cannabinoids. Is that true? I, I think it is true. But what you said, I, I mean, I wouldn't th- be surprised if that has entered into the equation either. I mean, there, you know, when a lot of these drugs were were developed, um, there were already hundreds of labs interested, or at least dozens, in in cannabinoids. There are now thousands, um, and yeah, I mean, developing something that could get around the DEA scheduling, uh, because it's so proprietary, would have been an advantage. But a lot of the synthetics, I mean, I remember very well when the HU compounds suddenly got moved to Schedule 1, um, and and it put a huge burden on people who were using it for their research. Right on. That makes sense. We're going to go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabinoid researcher Dr. Greg Gerdeman. 
Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Greg Gerdeman. So before the break, we were talking about the development of synthetic cannabinoids and their beneficial original uses that they were being used for in the lab. Well, you know, right towards the uh, end, we were talking about how they got out into the open and they started being produced by folks who want, were more interested in using them as an illicit or at the very least uh, recreational drug for, for just drug users. Um, can you kind of explain, Greg, how that works? How does this information that's being used in the lab get uh, into the possession of somebody who sees, um, you know, an opportunity to make money as a street drug with it? Well, I can speak in general ways to it. I mean, I'm not privy to the route with which really any of these escape from the lab in, in specific, but. You know, people publish their science and discuss it at conferences at, in open ways. And um, someone who is a savvy uh, organic chemist can look at structures, especially if there's a publication they found that talks about the synthesis. I mean, I think that some of these, um, some of these drugs, uh, whether they're in the first papers that used them or in patent filings, describe the synthesis. So what you need is some glassware and burners and a knowledge about how to do synthetic chemistry, and you can do it if yeah. you've got that chemistry background. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, there there are, to a certain degree, um, you know, how-to guides in, in the appendix, right? Because a lot of these papers, you know, they, they give you the, the data and the research and explanation in the main body, but, man, there's a treasure trove of good stuff in the appendix, a lot of these papers, that really give you um, give you secrets of how, do you, how you yeah. make it in your own lab at home. 
If you've got the right apparatus, if you some of them require certain precursor molecules that are not just something you go get at the store. Um, but, you know, I mean, those compounds that are easy to synthesize and are so potent, that's the thing. I mean, some of these synthetics, again, are a 1,000 or 10,000 times more um, active at CB1 receptors than THC is. So, it, you know, you think about dusting cannabis or something with kefir to, to elevate the THC content. These people used various, whatever cheap dried herbs and just spritz a little bit of these super potent cannabinoids on now and then. And it's enough that at least sometimes it's going to cause a powerful psychoactive effect. So, you know, I'm sure that there's some people who are like, wow, thousand times stronger than THC. Get me some of that. But, yeah, it, right. you know, <laughs> uh, when, when you, you know, start to research, um, you know, phytocannabinoids, you find that they're all kind of, they've all got a, a breaking system inside of them so that you can't, so, so it doesn't act open-endedly on your endocannabinoid system. Would you explain a little bit why, you know, using synthetics is so much more dangerous than using a, a naturally occurring phytocannabinoid? Well, you know, I think the way to talk about it is breaking down how, how drugs work under two different terms that are very different to a pharmacologist. One is potency and the other is efficacy. And this is jargon. People wouldn't know the difference when you're talking about a drugs, about drugs if they hadn't studied it. But potency means, you know, the concentration of a drug, how much do you need in order to elicit its maximal effect or like half maximal effect. Um, and we use that term potency very generally, like, oh, there's more THC in pot, so it's more potent now. But to a, a, a pharmacologist potency the potency of THC is the potency of THC and if you have more then you just have a higher concentration so you're pushing the effect higher but THC in different cells and tissues of your body or any molecule but just take THC it has because that's the problem child of cannabis right THC will still only activate and turn on that receptor to a certain extent. It maxes out. And that is the property of the THC receptor relationship that's referred to as efficacy. And that's what protects all of us cannabis users from from having a bad day. That's why there's been zero deaths. That's why well that's why it's a safe herb to use is because of this this cap, if you will, that nature intended. Well, the the phytocannabinoids certainly have a certain limited, they're considered partial efficacy agonists or just partial agonists. So yeah, THC has its own sort of limiting step, so to speak. And we didn't know that, honestly, until all these synthetics were made for the various reasons we talked about before the break. Um, and and you suddenly you have a drug. Wow, wait a minute. We thought THC was turning the system on, but you wash on this CP compound and it's like a thousand times it's active at a thousand times smaller dose that's potency and it drives the system stronger it doesn't it's not going to have a thousand times the efficacy it has a thousand times the potency but what we do know and this is still growing we're learning more about these different synthetics they not only push the receptor system to a higher level than anything the plant will do, especially if it's within an entourage of molecules like CBD that'll help temper 
THC. But even if you've got straight THC and a lot of it, you know, like some sort of straight THC dab or something, um, taking a synthetic that has a higher efficacy or a higher intrinsic activity, we also say, will do more than that high level of THC because it pushes the receptor further. It's a molecular property. Um, And I'll plug a little bit. I wrote something about this that was over on Project CBD's website recently, if people want to look that up. Oh, right on. Yeah, and you should. Everyone should know about projectcbd.org. Not only is it a great repository for um, for research, like uh, Greg is referring to, but also they've got a great section on the website where you can go and click on the word conditions. And it goes um, down, I don't know, maybe 50 different conditions that you may have as a human. And it gives you easy links to the Western science uh, that's been done about cannabinoids and that and that condition. So uh, yeah. we're, 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 we're both big fans of projectcbd.org. Uh, yeah. And I've helped, I've helped to kind of curate those lists over time, and I advise with them a lot. Oh, right on. Well, thanks for that work, because uh, I use them with patients all the time. So, so what is the experience that a, a user, an end user would have experiencing some of these synthetics um, that have got you know, so much uh, increased potency? Well, you know, one thing is that it'll knock you on your ass. I mean, it can. Well, for one thing, I mean, it's, there's absolutely, if people think it's tough to know what's in your cannabis, I mean, these products that are sold as, you know, spice products, there may be nothing in there, but, uh, but you may get some super potent agonist. And, you know, for example, several of us in the field know someone who was an early, uh, used synthesizer of this or, or tester of one of these drugs and, um, and tried some on himself and, uh, was like literally unable to move for like 48 hours. Um, wow. And I won't drop this person's name, but it was terrifying. I mean, you talk about someone, compare that to the worst, you know, brownie over ingestion that you possibly can have. And it's not, it's not the same. It, curiously, it is somewhat similar to uh, what happens in rodents. I mean, you can give THC at such high levels to a rat that he's unable to move. And that's been known for a long time. It's called a cataleptic response. You can like lift up the animal's legs and stuff and he just can't move. That's what these, and THC doesn't do that to people. I mean, you can be totally out there from a super high dose, but it doesn't make you enable to move. And some of these super potent agonists, I believe can. Um, the other, the, I think the more alarming thing is that cannabinoids uh, do have cardiovascular effects. They affect your heart rate. They affect the dilation of your blood vessels. Um, the endocannabinoids are used to help maintain an optimal balance with blood flow and cardiovascular tone like that. The phytocannabinoids do influence uh, these things. Hence, you know, you can have sort of a postural drop in blood pressure if you smoke, uh, smoke a bowl and, and get a high THC that lowers your blood pressure. It can make you need to sit down. Um, the, and it, and it, it, uh, THC elicits a transient increase in heart rate. The synthetics do so much more. And those increases in heart rate, those d- quick dynamic changes in blood flow, 
very possibly are increasing the the risk for suffering a cardiovascular incident like a stroke. And there's literature to suggest that. There are I've talked to multiple neurologists who they haven't, you know, done a a controlled study, but they're convinced it's real because they've seen people who've taken these synthetics and have are suffering significant strokes at ages where it's not common. And and that has been used to malign cannabis as well because that literature will pop up and people from like uh, whatever Project Sam or something will say, oh yeah, we know that cannabis increases the risk of stroke, but they're citing papers that are looking at a synthetic cannabinoid that is not just fake THC. It is a super potent full agonist instead of a partial agonist. It does things to your receptor system, drives it more powerfully causes it to activate cells in ways that THC doesn't, even at heroic doses. So we don't, I couldn't tell you all the reasons why it, these synthetics are likely to be more dangerous. I've just named a couple of them, um, but there may be others, and it, it won't be known unless it's really studied carefully. And in the meantime, people should pursue a more natural alternative that's been safe for thousands of years. Yeah, I think that's really the end point as far as the the end consumer of these. It's like, okay, well, we recognize that um, you're, you know, you're using Spice or K2 or any one of these marketed products because, you know, it's re- it's available. You can buy it at, you know, the local bodega or, or party yeah. store or whatever. And, you know, maybe where you live, cannabis is hard to get. Um, but just mm-hmm. because it's synthetic cannabinoids, um, it doesn't mean that it is gonna, you're going to have an experience that's in any way like like safe, natural marijuana that's been you know used interaction with with humans for thousands of years. This is more like some crazy Frankenstein version of it with none of the natural safeguards that come with using whole plant cannabis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's natural safeguards, and there's the safeguards of people who are are trying to create a medicine as opposed to just, you know, trying to make a buck. Yeah, right on. That makes sense. Well, um, let's go ahead and take our second short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a, a potential for synthetic cannabinoids be useful in the future. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabinoid researcher Dr. Greg Gerdeman. For anyone who is paying attention to cannabis medicine, it has become incredibly apparent that full extract cannabis oil, known to some as Reximson oil, is the cornerstone of healing humans with medical marijuana. If you own a medical dispensary or retail store, you know that your customers are asking for it every single day. And if you have been working with patients and seeking out quality full extract oil in the Pacific Northwest, you know the provider Deep Green. Kat Jeter and her team at Deep Green have been making full extract cannabis oil and setting the standards for quality and exact dosing for years in Washington State. The Deep Green brand is known by patients and cannabis media as a premium quality provider for sick children, cancer patients, and others in need. At a time when there are no national standards for cannabis oil, ensuring a product is whole plant, quality assured, and lab tested is often a matter of knowing your source is reputable. Trust in a quality brand is essential when choosing a cannabis medicine that is going to be used concentrated and in volume by any patient, and especially those with weakened immune systems. Deep Green is looking for national brand partners to expand the availability of their legacy top-shelf cannabis oil to emerging medical and licensed states. 
Partners benefit from the Deep Green brand recognition and credibility, as well as ongoing customer and marketing support. Not only that, but Deep Green knows how to employ the 280E tax rule so you can deduct it all from your taxes. Working with Deep Green can provide the trust and authenticity too often pushed aside in favor of lifestyle products. Your customers can assure themselves that regardless of the state in which it is made, brand licensees adhere to the same strict standards that patients everywhere have come to expect from Deep Green. Deep Green licensing includes startup and capital planning as well as operational and manufacturing instruction, as you'd expect. For more information on how your company, co-op, or medical dispensary can benefit from partnering with Deep Green to provide full extract cannabis oil to patients, go to shapingfire.com forward slash deep green to connect with Kat Jeter and her team. That's shapingfire.com forward slash deep green. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lowe. And our guest this week is cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Greg Gerdeman. So, Greg, you know, we kind of trashed um, synthetic cannabinoids pretty hardcore in the last set. Um, but, you know, we know that they came out of a lab where they were, you know, trying to do good research. You know, do you see a future in pharmaceuticals for synthetic cannabinoids to be used for something that's, you know, positive? I see that it certainly could happen. I mean, you know, for for 20 years now, I've been researching in this field you know, I can't tell you how many grant proposals or sort of paper discussion uh, taglines have sort of uh, played the language that w we could develop more specific drugs or that are have a better profile, specifically that don't have the kind of psychoactivity that cannabis does. Um, and, I mean, as we learn more about the endocannabinoid system being everywhere in the body uh you know i read a i read a paper the other day by you know some big research team not a usual suspect cannabinoid team i mean so many people are on the cannabinoids and they said very straightforward in their paper the endocannabinoid system is now seen as a master as the they use the word the master regulator of physiological homeostasis that kind of thing if i'd have said it in 1999, I'd have been, you know, laughed out of the room. And now we, so we know the importance of the endocannabinoid system. It's robust, it's diverse, and there are many different targets. And some synthetics may be developed that have better delivery, better, uh, longer lasting effect, uh, something of those nature, that nature that makes it very usable by physicians and could target specific things. Like maybe there's a subset of mitochondrial disease that as we learn more, uh, that certain synthetics like target really well. And on the other hand, maybe some of the minority cannabinoids that have been terribly understudied might treat those populations as well too. So I think there's promise in both. I, and, and also, you know, uh, synthetic cannabinoids can be used in researching, you know, full plant natural cannabinoids too, because you know they're just they're being used in the experiments as well. So maybe, maybe they're maybe synthetic cannabinoids can still be used, maybe maybe not as pharmaceutical products, but they they certainly seem to have uses in the lab in conducting your experiments. 
Oh, for sure. For sure they do. And, and drugs that block um, receptors are very useful tools. Drugs that have different little labels on them that you can see them on brain scans have tools. But, you know, what funds and drives brain research is the promise of discovering uh, treatments and cures for brain disease primarily. I mean, I'm a total science geek. I'm all about our drive to understand how it works. But primarily, uh, research is funded to find new tools and, I mean, more, new treatments and and, um, and cures even. It, some, some synthetic tools could be useful for that even if the end result is, I mean, I should back up, some synthetic tools will be useful for that, are useful for that, even if we should be able to step back from the end result and say maybe the best answer therapeutically is something that's been here all along. Oh, and I love that segue too, because the next point I wanted to make <laughs> is, you know, as as much as, as you are positing the possibility of synthetic cannabinoids being useful in for future patients from the pharmaceutical industry i know you to be a whole plant guy <laughs> like i am and um and you know if there's if there's you know x amount of money available for cannabinoid research i'm guessing that you're going to say put all that money into naturally occurring whole plant medicine and set aside the synthetic cannabinoids until we've done a hell of a lot more research on on the plant you know, with with apologies to all of the classical pharmacologists who have trained me and worked with me. Yeah, I do think. I also, I don't think it's a total zero-sum game. You know, within certain institutes, there will be certain budgets for research. Um, mostly, if, if the constraints for research weren't there, funding would come in to, to support whole plant cannabis therapeutics. And there are enough really good minds that are fascinated by this because it's the most fascinating <laughs> subject. Um, you know, I, I'm just I'm amazed by how many bright thinkers want to study cannabis if they can. And if the constraints to studying it weren't there, you know, I, I think that that's where a lot of the, the money would go. And that is of concern to the sort of traditional pharmaceutical industry, I think, um, where they're trying to adapt to it. I took your question a little bit of a twist, but yeah, I mean, uh, there is the, and it's the kind of thing that Mishulam has been saying like a prophet for decades uh, and others, but of course he's such a, um, a, a real mentor to so many of us that this plant is a treasure trove and uh, it, it's just one of the hugest discoveries, and we shouldn't be attached to the fact that it was discovered a long time ago and rediscovered and rediscovered. And we now have the state of technology to dig deeper and, and do the kind of studies to understand how these different molecules work and how different preparations work um, and, and what they work to help. You know, I was I was talking to a group two weeks ago, and somebody asked a question during Q and A about synthetic cannabinoids, and and you know, um, I was just getting ready for my for my talk with you, and I, you know, I wasn't too deep on it, but I said, you know, what I understand about synthetic cannabinoids so far is it's as if you were going to judge yourself on your worst cousin, you know, your cousin that comes to the party and is disruptive and gets drunk and, you know, hits on your sister-in-law or whatever, right? You can't, you can't judge, you know, you and your whole family based on that one, that one cousin and synthetic cannabinoids kind of seems to be like that. You can't judge the cannabis plant and all of the healing possibility that it holds um, just because synthetic cannabinoids found 
found their way out of the lab and are being sold to people who are using it wrong uh, at street right. level. Well, I mean, it's funny because it's like it's like THC has been the the bad uncle for a lot, at least according to the the propagandists, you know, and and to an extent, the 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 black market illegality created. Uh, you know, a, a selection for high THC plants, many of which are feeble little things that don't really grow very well, but they create a lot of THC. And, you know, the THC has gotten a bad rap um, because of simply getting you high at all. And we know that molecules like CBD and THCV, just to name a couple, have tremendous therapeutic value. And they've been short-shifted uh, because of uh, relationship to THC and now exposing it. This is what drives me nuts when, when I see a local news story about fake pot. It's because the media just don't know enough at all or don't care to know that it's not fake pot at all. It's a chemical that has never been found in cannabis ever. So it's, you know, kind of like saying crystal meth is fake dopamine. Uh, you know, they have biological interactions, but they're not the same. They're not. They're not a mimic of one another. It's a. It's a bad act. Right on. That's that's well said. So in the end, we come full circle around to uh, 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 holding up the whole plant and the and the safeties that that nature has imbued it with as being our our primary medicine and not something that's necessarily coming out of the lab today. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, right on. <laughs> well, Greg, thanks for being on the show. You know, I had been uh, curious about this for actually, actually, that's not actually true. I was going to say I was curious about this for a long time, but most of the time, spice and K2 has just been something I ignored because it had nothing to do right. with working with patients. It was just some crazy stuff I'd see on local news sometimes. But then yeah. when the first time I heard them say, you know, um, synthetic cannabinoids, I'm like, well, my whole life is cannabinoids. I guess I should <laughs> learn about this. Right. So, so even though I understand now better that it's, it's you know, doesn't really have anything to do with marijuana except for how the news um, reports about it, I feel far more confident in discussing it with people and, and that I know what the hell I'm talking about. So thank yeah. you very much for sharing your experience. Well, you're welcome. And of course, you know, it does act on a similar pathways it's just different and it is important because you know we like in florida right now we're dealing with situations where the industry is getting started in what i will delicately say is a very clumsy way and it you know the medicines are starting to roll out under the state legal system and they're they're absurdly expensive they're not transparently tested and you know it's easy to imagine scenarios where the dialogue around cannabis being medicine is much more common and somebody in a different in, a, in some community somewhere gets ripped off by saying hey man this is the same stuff it's medicine you don't want to pay that through the you know through the system I've, this stuff is like cannabis only it's a lot better you don't have to use you know so if this dialogue can help to inform uh, better that people don't make those mistakes and could lead to a serious problem, then it's, it's important to have. Right on. Dr. Greg Gerdeman is a cannabinoid researcher and assistant professor of biology at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I will be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.